0: You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now,
1: here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and Rick. But in addition to that, just like last week, we're joined by Alex Radcliffe of Board Game Co., And so excited to have you on again. How are
2: you doing, Alex? Doing well. It feels like just a minute ago that we were talking, and it's it's nice to be back. I don't know
1: what you're talking
0: about. Yeah, Um, in fact, we're all still wearing the same clothes.
2: (laughs) I wear these clothes every
1: day. We may or may not be recording this on the same day because Sean's wife is pregnant enough that she could pop tomorrow, and we need to have multiple episodes cut just in case.
0: I might pop tomorrow, too, but for
1: other reasons. (laughs) Taco Bell Mexican pizza. So
0: In this episode, we're going to talk about Alex. Yes.
1: Yeah, we're going to jump into Alex's world. Uh, (laughs) In particular, we wanted to put an episode together because Alex is probably one of the most honest reviewers on YouTube for board games and things of that nature. And so I really wanted to pick Alex's brain about, you know, really our whole team wanted to pick Alex's brain about why he does things the way he does in his review videos, pros, cons of the way reviewers on YouTube generally do things and uh, how creators can work with a reviewer and so many other things. Really looking forward to diving into Alex's head a little bit. For those of you that don't know Alex, Alex, would you give a, a short intro to yourself and then tell us something that nobody
2: knows about you? Ooh, that should be fun. Uh, so uh, I am Alex Radcliffe from the YouTube channel Board Game Co. I like talking about board games, all things board games, topics about board games, and any, honestly, things like this conversation we're going to have today are some of my favorite things because. I just like, I like the space, I like the industry, and I like having conversations people aren't always having. It's, you know, there's going to be 14 reviews for every single game, if not more, but not everyone's talking about this kind of stuff. As far as a little fact or something that not many people know about me, um, I had a cat, Penelope, growing up. Uh, she died when I was like, I don't know, 20-ish or something like that, and and have fond memories of her. I don't really bring her up in, in many contexts or conversations. She just happens to be a cat that we had growing up. Oh. That's super cute.
0: So Alex, uh, when did you bring your passion of board games out into the the YouTube world to the public?
1: You don't like cats, Rick?
0: I had a cat, and it used to run into walls. Why did you change the subject? <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: it depends on how you count it, because uh, I actually I have a side business, Board Game Co. It's something that we're cur- I'm currently looking to step away from, but it's something that I, I, I resell, buy and sell used board games. I've been doing it since 2014, and it's something that's been great. It was another outlet for my hobby, but also it's not where my passion lies. My passion lies what I'm doing right now. And and so, but the reason that's relevant to this conversation is because for a long time I wrote our weekly emails, our weekly emails that went out once a week, every single week on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, and it had a short blog format of a game I played that week. You know, here's a game, this game didn't work for me, that one did. Here's some notes, and I, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot writing up my notes, and I got a lot of positive feedback in it, and I, I enjoyed that process. I don't like the time it takes to write. When it comes to writing, I'm very very I try to be very diligent and I reread everything and I try to reformat and it just takes so much longer versus talking. I just, you can't re say the thing you just said. So like, there's a degree of like, I mean, you could, you could edit if you want, you can edit every single word of that, but that, that to me feels disjointed. I don't like that level of precise editing so I, I just like having a conversation and if I say the wrong word, the wrong thing, repeat myself, whatever, it just feels like it just feels natural. And so I like talking more. Uh, in twenty nineteen I started doing YouTube again for the sake of the business as a outlet to promote Board Game Co. And in the first if you watched like my first like fifteen videos, I'm like, oh this video is sponsored by Board Game Co. blah blah blah, buy, sell, etc. But I quickly dropped that because I found that I wasn't doing it because I liked that. I just really enjoy talking about board games. I really enjoy just getting on camera and just doing the thing I was doing my weekly write-ups, but doing it more easily, more often, and in a format, in a, in a platform, and a medium that I enjoyed a lot more. And so one thing led to another, and I started to find my voice and the things I was passionate about, these types of conversations, talking about Kickstarter, uh, the value of backing Kickstarters, all these different side points that aren't just board game reviews. Board game reviews came much later. I, I I believe then and I believe now that trying to jump into the review space is very, very cluttered. There's a million people doing reviews, both big and small, and it's hard to stand out. So you have to generally either be doing something different or better. I certainly wasn't better. If you watch my earlier videos, I certainly was not better at all. The quality was not there. The equipment was not there Uh, the way I communicated and talked I definitely had those slows ums and ahs and pauses and just the tempo was was not there but I did have different I did talk about things other people weren't talking about and as I found my voice and as I found my audience inherently you put out a video every single day for two and a half years and you will get slightly better at talking and that's the (laughs) short version of everything
0: yeah um in fact two weeks ago on our podcast we were discussing uh like pretty much everything's on youtube and we were saying that, you know, if you want to be big on YouTube, you got to do something different. You got to stand out like you just said, stand out. In fact, I said if I did a YouTube channel, it would be on if I, if I did it on board games, I would take the board game out and either light it on fire or uh, drown it in water and see if it survives. Uh, have you ever thought of, of doing that with your with your board games?
2: no no i haven't although i do know like there's one channel out there that they have like uh, x million subscribers i don't remember what it is i just remember there's a point that was brought up but all they do is they they have pool noodles those like giant long pool noodles and they just (laughs) slap them that's all they do that's all the video content is (laughs) but it's just like it's a reminder that whatever your content is everything exists and it does make me feel a little inferior as a a human being that they're slapping pool noodles and making tons of of money doing so and i'm like i just want to play board games and no one cares
0: Don't they call that, uh, was it ASMR? Oh, that's not ASMR.
2: That's not. (laughs) It's adjacent. It's adjacent.
1: (laughs) ASMR is about as confusing to me as blockchain technology.
2: Oh, I can Um, go into ASMR. you kidding me? Let's pivot this entire conversation. I love (laughs) ASMR. I don't even know what it is, so you need to find it for me. Yeah, because from what I've seen, it's it's either people
0: making weird noises or whispering into a microphone while doing psychedelic. uh, Hello. yeah.
3: Yeah,
2: I'm with you. This is great. Yeah, exactly. ASMR is audio, sensory something response. Uh, Oh,
3: that's like the the kind of shady part of Twitch,
2: isn't it? Twitch does it a lot. Twitch does it a lot. So I happen to love it because I find that when I put my headphones on and I listen to ASMR, like I've done this, like you want, hey, let's go back back to the past fact. You want something that no one knows about Alex Radcliffe? Um, I have absolutely gotten fictional haircuts via ASMR where I put my headphones on, I lay back and someone just goes... Making little noises, wow. shampooing the hair, wow. and it, it gives you complete. If you're if you have the response, which not everyone does, it just feels so zen. My body gets into mm-hmm. chills. I just feel like I feel pampered. Like I feel like I'm just in the barbershop getting the haircut, and uh, 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 I, love I love it. I love it. I'm sorry. I don't does do it. Does your often, wife but- know this? Oh, my wife, my wife does know it. My wife does. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to yeah. be lying down in a chair listening to whatever with like someone on YouTube and that, without having explained this to your wife. You do not want to be caught in that position. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry. No, not ASMR. Something else. Something else. No, <laughs> much, much more easy to explain.
1: That's, that's very interesting though. I mean, it's it, certain things you can say like, oh, you know, that's stupid, but there are people that make Massive amounts of money and impact with things that you consider stupid. And I find, you know, every generation thinks that the next generation's hobbies or things they like are are stupid. I mean, you you can't walk down the street without finding a boomer that, uh, you know, if you asked them about TikTok, they would say, ah, that's stupid.
2: Right. Well, TikTok is stupid. No, sorry.
1: (laughs) We all agree TikTok (laughs) is stupid. Stupid,
0: (laughs) Stupid is successful. I mean, look at I mean, from a marketing standpoint, world it just—it it kills like look at Blendtec, Blendtec blenders. They were a nobody until they started the Will It Blend series so of videos. Yeah. And yeah, everyone knows everyone's seen those. Everyone knows it. it's the stupidest thing in the world, you know, but it sells blenders. And mm-hmm. that's the same thing for this. It's it sells
1: stupid sells. Yeah. Whenever somebody discounts a new method of doing something or of communicating for now, right now in twenty twenty two it's all about being social ways to engage because we're in a society that is increasingly even before covid, we were all quite isolated from one another. In fact, I remember back in the two thousands era, we would play a lot of video games by ourselves at our houses on our computers or whatever console, and we would get together and talk about it. but I remember like as soon as Really, po- am I dating myself? Pokemon <laughs> Red and Blue came out. Like we were hiding among all of the cool kids at high school. We were like hiding in a corner, trading like Pokemon Red and Blues. No, uh,
0: if you if you want to date yourself, you need to talk about Pogs,
1: like my generation.
2: All Pogs were yeah. delightful. Hi, Pogs.
1: <laughs> Dude, I love Pogs too. They're my mom down. was mad because uh, we would trade. Basically, we would gamble Pogs away. It was like, oh yeah, yeah. that's
0: why it's so great.
1: I remember I spent like 10 bucks on a Godzilla pog, like from Seaport Village in San Diego. I, it was like, I don't know
3: why to this day. <laughs> it's
1: like, why was that $10? Mm.
3: <laughs> so, Alex, you said that in 2011. That's when you got into the board game hobby. Do you want to talk? talk to us a little bit how that happened and did you play game other games before that or what was the sort of sure, like, sure. What's, what's your gaming history I suppose
2: so the condensed version of my gaming history would be uh, I played a lot of games growing up to a degree but like more standard games I think the craziest thing we played was risk 2210 which to this day I think is the best version of risk out there uh, my we favorite. also go to the moon. It's Ooh. awesome, exactly. Every time, go to the moon. Uh, but I, I mean, honestly, I have such fond memories of X-2210 that I kind of want to play and I'm scared to because I think I'll win it for myself with all the gaming I have in my belt now. But I have fond memories. We'll leave oh, it at that.
1: This game sucks. <laughs> oh, it's so good.
2: Uh, I also played Corridor. Corridor from Gigamic Games. Fond memories of that one as well. Another fun abstract. It's just the occasional odd thing that wasn't exactly Risk of Monopoly. But then also Catan. Catan we played and that's all fine. But that's kind of just, we dabbled. We had things. We played games. We were no, we, normal people. Nothing crazy. Uh, from there, we moved to in 2011, which is when my brother-in-law came back from college, and he was visiting you know, Cleveland, and he came back with a copy of – I want to say Stone Age was first. He came back with Stone Age, and he put Stone Age down on the table, and I played, and I was like, this is a lot of fun. That was great. Nothing else happened. Three months later, he comes back with Small World, and he puts Small World down on the table, and I'm like, this is fun. This is great. What's happening here? And it's at that point that I had these two new games in a three-month period where I was like, I've never heard of these things. I want to start Googling stuff. And I started Googling and I've always been a bit of a obsessive personality. And I went out and bought a bunch of games very, very quickly. I spent, I don't know, I don't remember exactly number, but I spent like $300 in like two or three different stores, just buying all these games, trying to do different things, dabbling in like a little bit of board game geek research and figuring out what's out there. And then I just continued to go down the rabbit hole very quickly, very fast for the next uh, 12 years.
0: Based on these 12 years, how much money do you think you've
2: spent on board games? (laughs) Are we counting collectively spent or netted? Because it's a very complicated conversation.
3: (laughs) You have a spreadsheet. (laughs) I have spreadsheets.
2: (laughs) So I I don't do the spreadsheets anymore. I I stopped doing them. For years, I did the spreadsheets. For years, I tracked everything I did in terms of selling, trading, and whatnot. And one of the reasons I actually started Boarding & Co. as a business, the side business I had, one of the reasons I got into that was because of the fact that I was tracking all my data and I was realizing that I was not really losing money. I was just getting, I was spending the same money again and again and again while selling and trading the rest. And that really strongly incentivized me to turn into a business from that mindset. Um, And then obviously, once you count the business, then I can just say, look how much money I made on board games because I have a side business that makes money. But I have gone through well over a thousand board games so if we're just counting the board game cost without factoring in what happened to them next i've gone through well over a thousand board games in my collection over the past 12 years my realistic guess is probably closer to 1500 but i'm not entirely sure and so you just assume a forty dollars per board game that's like probably 40k of expenditure but again with them all being sold on the way out so not actually 40k
0: so your habit which is more like a uh, obsession Mm -hmm. got so big that you had to create a business to offset it.
2: Yes. Not the first (laughs) time I've ever done it. When I got into magic, the gathering earlier on in 2007, 2008, I did the same exact thing. Got into magic, the gathering obsessively bought up MTG and really got heavily into the hobby and then turned around and started selling it online and ran a business for two years.
0: I think that's where game stores came from. Like every time you go to game stores, you know, the people that work there are the ones like, you know, like, especially like ones that have like magic cards for sale, you know, like the owners bought like pallets of of magic gatherings, open them up, got the ones they liked. And then the other ones they just put out for sale to make up for all the the money spent on that pallet of magic gathering cards. (laughs) That's how,
1: that's how Rob from uh, Wise Wizard Games got started. He did a uh, somewhat recent podcast with Gabe Barrett on Board Game Design Lab. And he was talking about how he got into the space and he was a former pro magic player that got into selling he was like one of the first sellers for uh, magic cards i i got into magic really heavy and around 2008 my cousin sold he stole all my magic cards and sold them for weed and um <laughs> so that was pretty much the end, end of that. your career yeah it's like my black lotus my you know all my moxes all my type one deck he basically stole that and and sold it for probably like a
3: hundred bucks. Now Alex has them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: now they're in Alex's collection.
3: So Alex, is it common for publishers to let you keep the games that you review, or is it very common for them to tell you to... Pass them on? How, how often do you get to keep keep the
2: game? Most of the time, they the games, I would say prototypes are very common to be sent on. When you have a prototype, prototypes are obnoxiously enough, even though they're much less quality than a final game, they cost much more to manage, to make, to maintain. So you might have a prototype that looks half as good as the final game and costs $400 just for the publisher, the, the nature of the yep. game. And so those are often circulated a lot because they're expensive not to be. And so those are sent around and, you know, hey, here you have it, great, done, you know done with the content, great, move it on, totally fine. Uh, final games, I would say it's very rare that I get asked to send on. A final game. Um, I don't know what the general practices are out there for everyone and anyone. I've seen occasionally publishers try to bring up the idea of rotating games around, uh, but often I, I, I've seen mostly di- Mostly I see that concept dismissed with the idea that it's already – it's not about the the value of the game to a degree, but it also is about the value of the game, meaning when you ask somebody to review a game, especially if you're not paying them for the content, it's enough work as it is. And depending on who you are, it may or may not be worth the time. You're doing it as a work of passion. And Mm -hmm. sending things on is a hassle like for me like throwing out a game is easy sending it on is as a hassle to package up to get the address I do it because hey I'm, I'm part of the ecosystem and I'm going to do it whenever I can do it especially for prototypes but if like publishers were just sending me games and I have the obligation of packaging and shipping up multiple games I would just say no to more reviews I wouldn't say no to everything but I'd be more picky more whatever and again it's already like a low enough reward in terms of the pure I mean I'm in the fortune position that my channel is large enough that it is worth the time but many many smaller people if you have someone who's putting out a video and they just don't have the time effort energy it almost feels like a slap to say thanks so much for the free marketing and also send that game on now
0: i think it comes down to the to the cost for the for the publisher. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you when you're making a prototype, you know, it, it like you know, Andrew can can vouch for this. It costs hundreds of dollars just to get that prototype out cuz it's you have to individually make each part, you, you they're not it's not done in bulk, you know, and you may have to go multiple sources at, until you can find a you know, a company that can take care of it for you. So your game costs hundreds of dollars and I can see why they would want you to pass on. But of course, once you've gotten your game published and produced, um you know that 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 200 board game is now a twenty dollar board game, and it's just too much of a hassle to, to even ask for it back. I mean, at that point, it's just like
1: here, you
0: know. I, so I think that's why it goes that way. But that's just my two cents.
1: Putting together a prototype of uh, Deliverance, for example, is about two hundred and sixty bucks, and it takes at minimum like two weeks to actually put them together. I can, you know, maybe put ten of them together in that time, um, at the most. But ordering and waiting, and then piecing them together and that kind of thing you don't want to have your reviewers punching out a bunch of tokens from gamecrafter getting their hands all sooty Ooh, from a new
0: ASMR
2: yeah punching
0: yeah. <laughs> oh. <out. laughs> <know>. punching out
1: <laughs>
2: it is pretty satisfying to do that one of the things that I hate the most being a reviewer is dealing with the soot on gamecrafter thingies like it's fine it is what it is I'll do it but like it's just like so all over the place and it's 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 yeah it's
1: Absolutely gnarly, um, and uh, yeah. So I find that is a complex process, and I totally understand sending it off. But really, it's almost like more of a pain to you know when I send the actual game is you know roughly I want to say it's going to be like seventeen dollars and fifty cents ish to you know per per copy. It's sealed. It's all together. All I have to do is say, hey, quartermaster logistics, or hey, fulfillment center, send a copy here, and they do. And it's so fast and easy. And I think it's a uh, like Alex, like you were saying, I would consider it a reward for you know more like a thank you for giving me a review. I guess on that topic, how do you get paid, uh, or do you do a lot of unpaid reviews? How do you monetize your channel? Is it or or your your effort?
2: Yeah, so so for me, I don't do any. Well, it depends how you define that. I don't do any paid content, with a caveat to what that means. Uh, what I do right now, the way I monetize YouTube is a combination of of two primary sources and then a third kind of tangential peripheral source. Uh, the first way is YouTube itself, YouTube ad revenue, which it, you do have to be at a certain size for that to be a reasonable amount of money. Uh, thankfully, I've been very fortunate in the past two and a half years to have my channel grow fairly decently, and I am able to make several thousand a month from YouTube ad revenue. Again, but most people are are in the position where they're just not getting enough it's it's a very low amounts of money uh the general numbers they say out there is uh, a million views translates into roughly four to five thousand dollars of income roughly and even then it's there's a range you could be significantly less you could be a little over but that's generally the range you're looking at for a million views and a million views is a lot of views it, take, it takes time to get a million views uh the second aspect the second big, big area and right now right now i think the biggest yeah right now for sure it's the biggest area because uh, when i when i quit my job i i told my audience and they were incredible. They were absolutely incredible. It took, they, they basically doubled the size of my Patreon, which is the second aspect, Patreon. Uh, Patreon is currently responsible for several thousand dollars a month. And it nearly doubled after I quit my job by saying, Hey, I've been doing this. I've been having a lot of fun. Also, if you've ever valued the content I put out, I appreciate now more than ever because now we're talking about you know making tough choices and tight decisions and stuff. And so Patreon combined with YouTube, both of those are going to be the biggest sources of how I monetize my platform, of how I basically pay myself for the time I'm putting into it. The third peripheral, much smaller but still helpful aspect is uh, video sponsors, where you have someone like you know GameFound will sponsor a video. GameFound will be like, oh, hey, we're running Proud a campaign thing, nice. for – yeah, crowdfunding or whatever—it's or crowd, that kind of thing. Any of those things, or or I believe uh, what's it called? Do we board game table companies have have sponsored videos? So I've had various companies in different ways reach out to say, hey. Can you do this video for us? In which case, I do the video. They sponsor the video. They pay for it. And that's the smallest amount because it's the least consistent, at least so far. I'm fairly particular about my sponsorships. I don't want anything that's – I don't want Skillshare. I don't want these other 15 things, Raid, Shadow Legends. I don't care about that stuff. I don't want to – I mean, again, pay me enough money and maybe I'll care. (laughs) But I'd I'd rather not give my audience things that aren't – what I don't, I don't want to spam them with, with that, I'd rather give them board game adjacent content. Uh, and so, I try to be particular with the sponsorships, but that does mean it's the least frequent, but it's certainly not a bad thing to have.
0: When it comes to monetization, you talked about using ads. Which ads work good for you? Are you using like you know, before, after, in the middle? Because um, I know YouTube gives you choices uh, of what kind of ads you want to use or how you want to place your ads. And then, also, when it comes to your Patreon, um, what kind of are you offering benefits or how do you entice people to to become that extra Patreon member?
2: So good question on both. Uh, first of all, regarding the ads, I, I tend to do what I, I use, the pre-rolls, the mid-rolls and whatever YouTube suggests in that sense. Uh, my goal is I manually edit the, the mid-rolls, though, because if you let YouTube do mid-rolls, they like to like just be completely crazy. One video will have none. But the next video, you'll have a video. Where, like I'll put up two videos and one of them will have no mid-roll ads at all. The second one will have a mid roll every three minutes. I'm like, you gotta, you gotta figure out what you're doing here, YouTube, because it's so inconsistent. So I, I manually edit the mid rolls. Uh, my goal in general is one mid roll per ten minutes of content. So a twenty minute video generally will have a, a front ad and then two mid rolls. Uh, it's one of those things that I definitely do want to ease back as if or when money is less of a something I have to balance. Because speaking for myself, I don't love mid rolls, and if I can make if I can get the content to more people who aren't going to be uh, you know annoyed by them, then great, by all means. Also, I need to pay myself my time, so it's a balance. But over time, as Patreon goes up, as views get higher and I don't need to, yeah, I'd love to lower that or completely take it out entirely. There's a longer side conversation about the fact that YouTube also more heavily promotes videos that have mid-rolls because if they're making money on it – then they're going to show it to more people. So it's it's a multiple complicated conversations there. Uh, as far as Patreon, Patreon, I've always believed in having some form of reward. And I, I've dabbled with different things when I started off. What I do right now is I just focus on extra content. That's the biggest thing I have. Extra content plus the occasional giveaways, although it's worth noting for legal reasons that the giveaways are not random. They are selected giveaways because you cannot run random giveaways hidden behind a paywall because uh, that's illegal. Uh, so yes. they are selected, <laughs> very selected. But people in my Patreon at different tiers will get get free games that I manually select those individuals and they get free games. Uh, They usually, whenever I'm getting rid of games, some of them go to them the other thing is is content i try to have three videos a week up on patreon i have one video that's usually on sunday that is a, a solo gameplay i put up there uh, and then mondays i usually do a, a long mondays on my main channel board game co i do a video covering all the kickstarters and i do a very aggressive you'll, you'll appreciate this i do a very aggressive here are all the reasons to not back every single kickstarter i just went over over on my patreon it's a shorter, <laughs> it's a seven to ten minute long video where I'm just like aggressive, like, and I make it very clear. And part of the reason it is Patreon specific is I don't want the algorithm serving it up to people who don't realize, like, the series is called unfair and unbalanced. And I, in every video, I'm like, this is not a fair and balanced approach. This is me trying to convince you not to back games to save you money. Yeah. Um, people, people like that a lot. And then the third oh, one that's is, yeah, it's yeah. Like it's, notes. <laughs> yeah
1: I, I know you addressed deliverance on one of your weekly Kickstarter videos. That was kind of cool. I appreciate that. I'm oh. so curious about. If you did that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> let me, remind You'll have me.
2: to uh, subscribe so, to his Patreon to find out. No, no, it's, it's a video that's unlisted. <laughs> I, I can just send you the link. Remind me after the, the, the thing, I'll send you the link for it. Let me, let me, let me, I'll yeah. watch it first and then see if I'm willing to send you the link for it. <laughs> <laughs> the last one is a, I do a, 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 the one, my personal favorite is the, just the, behind the scenes, just here's what's up. Here are the things that are bothering me. Here are the things I'm trying to focus on. Here's the struggles I've had this week. Here are the things that happened well. Just a, a weekly personal video of what's going on. And that's, that's the Patreon content
0: now listening to all of that that was crazy like how much time are you investing in that i mean it, that's 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 full-time plus work i think
2: i'm currently up to 19 videos a week on average across Ooh. across all my platforms across board Game co <laughs> i also have a side separate channel called quack and co that i share with quack lope we do short form videos over there and between those three platforms patreon quack and co and board Game co I'm, I'm roughly 19 videos a week
1: Wow. That's awesome.
2: I think. How does uh, that
0: translate into into personal time?
2: Uh, what personal time?
1: <laughs>
0: you also I mean, play games too. I mean, I I'm assuming since you've done so many videos, you've gotten pretty quick at quicker at editing them. Um, but when I do a video, it's like you record it and then you spend like ten times the amount of time from recording it to edit it and post it
2: so Um, i have gotten very good at finding all the ways to not spend time on videos or as little as possible i spend time playing games that's a big one because you have to you can't really shorten that plus it's fun but one of the things i do in general is first of all i don't i just do one take the amount of videos that get an actual edit to adjust for something i said or coughed or did i would say maybe one out of every 10 videos gets an edit and even then it's usually because i'm coughing or something i i don't It's not that I don't necessarily care about having the perfect words said at a given point, but I'd rather talk about board games. I don't want to edit the videos, so I just have made it a focus to try to be better at one-take videos as much as possible. The second thing and my personal little thing that I love that I've fallen in love with this over the past uh, month or so, and I'm going to show it to the camera for those who are whoever. I have a little foot pedal here. This controls the top and front camera when I do a video or review or a gameplay and basically I'm now my own actor and director. So when I have multiple cameras <laughs> wow. on a video, I no longer have to edit in post. I am editing as I go and it's all feeding into my computer. I love this thing, you have no idea. It's it's a it's incredible. It looks like a sewing machine pedal. Exactly. It is a sewing machine pedal effectively and it's hopping from one camera to the other. So it used to be I'd film multiple camera angles, put the SD cards to my computer, grab the feeds and then spend. If if I did an hour long gameplay, I'd spend two hours editing that gameplay. Mm -hmm. And now that hour long gameplay spends zero seconds editing that gameplay. I cut the front off and the end off and the entire thing was edited as I went because I'm tapping the pedal and switching the camera angle. I am in love. You have no idea. So really is that, cool. does
0: that create just one feed or does it still create – like let's say you didn't like what you did. Are you yep. able to fix that or is it just once it's done, it's done?
2: So the film is still being recorded on the SD card. So if something went wrong, I could still edit it the old-fashioned way or even splice it in the old-fashioned way. Uh, I don't so far because, again, I, I don't like editing. I haven't needed to. I haven't needed to. Actually, not touch with you. I lie. I lie. I did need to. I did need to once so far. Uh, this is still new to me. This is something that I found uh, uh, maybe three, four weeks ago and uh, – i've said it multiple times yeah, now amazing. but i'm in love
3: <laughs>
2: cut your I, work week from i, I need hours i need that 40. for this podcast <laughs> that's what it is that's what it is I, I it's it's you don't have a choice i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna try to do what i'm doing you have to find what you can where you can and i'd rather find i'd rather spend time doing the things i love and find all the tools and tricks to avoid i think one of my favorite quotes and i can't get the exact quote right i don't remember exactly what it is but it's from i think it's from bill gates and the quote he gave and it's not it don't apply the exact quote, everything, but you'll get the idea. But he like said, given a choice between hiring a lazy man or a hardworking man, I'd rather hire the lazy man because the lazy man will find a way to get the job done faster and better. Now, obviously, it's not entirely true, but I've always appreciated that mindset. I'm lazy. Like I, I, people think I work a lot yes I do but I'm also inherently lazy I want the quickest shortest way to get to the fun stuff and ignore all the work
1: it works smarter not harder as as they say or smarter and harder
3: right so Alex you mentioned a lot of ways of monetizing your content what I didn't really hear is paid reviews. so is that something that's not really on the radar or that you don't how do you how do you interface with publishers and do you do paid reviews
2: I currently don't do paid reviews for two reasons, two paid previews, paid reviews. I just don't do paid content yet for a reason. And I, I did make it clear that when I went full time, I said, hey, I don't want to do this this type of content. And at the end of the day, though, the first priority is that my family doesn't have a problem paying the bills. And so I'll do whatever I need to do. But I do want to avoid that type of content. And the reason I want to avoid it is both for the audience and selfishly for myself. Although I should really say selfishly for myself on both counts. And I'll explain that. The the for the audience one is the audience doesn't like paid content. They don't. Some are more comfortable than others. There are some that completely don't care, but most people care some degree, and how much they care varies by person. There's a the perception of bias. The perception of if you're paying, if you're getting paid for this, then it's just a it's a commercial. It's a showcase. It's not an opinion. And so because they don't like it, I don't I don't want to do it either. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I I don't. I just choose not to. The reason that's still selfish is because. I'm doing it for myself. If the audience doesn't like it, I have the mindset of, well, then my channel will grow faster and will, you know, continue to have more people come in and people continue to have people who trust me. There's a selfish motivation behind what they like. Give the people what they want. The second aspect, and really the primary reason, is I'm worried it'll pollute my own love for the hobby. I'm worried that if I start taking money for things, if then I suddenly I'm starting to play and cover games that I'm not in love with. Right now, I try to cover things as if I'm buying them. When someone offers me a review copy of something, I look at it as, would I have bought it? And if the answer is no, I try to say no because why should I spend time on something if if it wasn't worth if it wasn't worth $30, how is it worth my time? How is it worth hours and hours and hours of my time if it wasn't worth $30? And mm-hmm. so I try to only take something on if it's something I would have purchased but if you change the conversation if you're getting a $500 check to cover a game well now it's worth playing that mediocre game more so to a higher degree to a higher ratio and also it's going to be even harder to be negative it's going to be even harder to be as blatant and honest as direct and honest is a, honest is a tricky one i don't love the word honest in these conversations but blunt let's use the word blunt it is it is easier to be blunt about how i feel about a game when there's not money involved and i i want to always maintain the love i currently have for the hobby i left a higher paying job to do what i love for less money so what's the point in turning it into something where i get more money and no longer love it mm. right
0: i think i'd be like these guys just paid me 500 dollars to re- re- review their game and here's the review it sucked yeah. <laughs> but i got 500 dollars for it thanks guys <laughs> yeah
3: <laughs> and another problem is is how do you monetize reviews because the amount of work that has to go into learning a game setting it up editing publishing yep. By the time you work that out, you're probably making very little money on the review to begin with. So I think your your philosophy is one hundred percent correct is to do it because you want to cover those games and you personally enjoy covering and I think that shows in your content where you have this yeah, this authentic demeanor, I suppose, of of talking to the camera and you know, as as you said, you're talking about the game as if you would buy it. So I think that's that's valuable for your viewers.
2: And it's a real problem. It's a very real problem out there because like I was talking to somebody else who I really value in the space, a great guy. His name is Chris George, Women Borders' channel, phenomenal guy. And we, t- we had this conversation like a few weeks ago about this aspect of, it's it's very hard to take that approach unless you do really well in the space. There are a handful of channels that have done well enough out there, large enough channels that have been able to survive on the crowd, on the crowd funding them, whether uh, it's Patreon, whether it's Kickstarter, and that's great because then you can monetize your time. You give a service to the audience, and the audience is paying you for your time. Great. But it's very, very hard to get there, and it makes it a very hard industry for people to break into because the easiest way to functionally break into this is to take money from publishers. And that it changes the way you approach it, the content, changes the way you interact with it, and it also does change how fast you grow. Uh, to to a large extent, you kind of have to be willing to really slug it out for years and years and hope that you're able to make a make it or break it and find that audience. Otherwise, it's again, I'm I'm, I'm I won't I've said it multiple times. Like I, I'm very fortunate. I I am I'm in a position where it, it's. The fact that I can do what I do without taking money from publishers and continue to do it is is I'm very grateful for it. But I I, I wish we had a better ecosystem that, or just a larger hobby that made it easier for more and more people to do this as a full time thing.
0: I'm uh, waiting for the next large power outage to happen in Southern California. That's when board game sales are going to go up again. It's... Oh, I have a story with that. I have a story
2: with this that. Month. <laughs> so I was so with the power outage just it reminded me of one of my favorites. one of my favorite stories of board games ever is we sat down to play a game, the lights went out, the whole the power went out of the house. And we set up some candles and continued playing Zombicide uh, Green Horde by Power, just by Candlelight. And we proceeded to do that for the next hour and a half. And towards the end of the game, my wife comes downstairs and she says, The power went on an hour ago. Like, what are you doing? The power had gone on and we'd been playing in the dark for the entire time at night and not realizing the power had gone back on. We just hadn't turned the light back on.
1: That's so awesome. The uh, thematic, who was, were you like the thematic dungeon master
2: narrating the story? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. it was a blast. That's so awesome.
3: So, Alex, was the board game co your first YouTube channel, or did you have other ones before that? Did you did you learn things from previous YouTube channels that you were able to integrate into your current channel? You
2: know, board game co was the first YouTube channel I had, but I also I if, like because I was starting it off as a marketing opportunity for my, for the retail operation that I had before my plans changed. I also did approach it with a lot of intent. I, I didn't just start a YouTube channel and start doing videos because I like talking about board games. I, I read – I must have read dozens of articles on different things you're supposed to do to start a YouTube channel, different approaches, different technology. I didn't do the technology until later, but it just, I just – I really heavily researched all the stuff about how YouTube works, how the ecosystem works, uh, the importance of thumbnails, the importance of watch time, the importance of a, a million different things. Uh, one of the other things that tends to happen in any hobbyist industry, passion-based industry, is you have a lot of people who care about something. They just start doing that thing, but they don't necessarily spend the time to make sure that they're doing it correctly they just do the thing they love and they think that hey if you if you like it people will come and that used to be the case in things but like even nowadays if you want to be like an electrician you can't just be the best electrician you also have to have someone who knows how to market yourself like how do you how are you going to be so how are people going to find you where your fly is going up? What are you doing? How are you maintaining customers? What's your what's your CRM to like manage all this stuff? You have to be good at multiple things, and a lot of channels are just relying on passion. And while that's great for the hobby, it's not necessarily great for the growth of the channel.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I think that a lot of people just start going, and uh, you know, we see this with a lot of podcasts where people will relaunch their podcast after 60 episodes or you know whatever. I I think um, that's probably one of the more common things. Um, or they just give up, you know, it, it ends up not returning a good investment and it just doesn't seem like it's growing, so they give up. So let's say I, ha- I am a game publisher. I have prototype of deliverance right behind me. And yeah. let's say I want to send it to Alex and you know, get a the board game co coverage of that. I mean, how does that process typically begin? And how would a, how would somebody that wants to send you something improve their chances, if you will?
2: Like, ooh, fun question. You know what I mean? So the yeah. first first off the bat is the process usually begins with somebody reaching out to me. Um, I used to reach out more. I try not to anymore or I try, I try not to inf- – I try to do it infrequently because I have found that I get busier and busier, fortunately, between the games I buy and the games publishers are sending me. I have backlogs that I need to worry about, and I, I just I feel bad asking for a game and then not having coverage for six months, and that just I'd rather avoid that. And so usually it begins with them reaching out to me uh, or an existing relationship already, which existing relationships are easier, so let's forget that. Let's pretend they're reaching out to me for the first time. They send me an email. Hey, we'd love for you to have a cover. And that's, email is the first one, alex at boardgameco.com. I put it in the description of every single video. For media purposes, reach out. Great, by all means fine. Uh, that's the starting point. The From there, it's a question of what email did I get and am I interested in the game? So as a starting baseline to improve your chances, if you actually seem to know my content, that generally helps a lot. Uh, mass emails that clearly aren't catered to me I, I, those are the only emails that I may not even bother responding to. I might if I'm interested in the game, but if it's just a clearly mass email, oh, we think this will be a great fit for your channel. And they're showing me like some game that's clearly not a good fit for the content I like. So I don't know if you, if you weren't polite enough to draft me a custom email around or even like actually know who I am I don't even feel the need to reply but any other email I reply to those this when you're clearly just don't know who I am or know my content I just don't feel the need give
0: like a little questionnaire that says like oh before we, we partner tell me the 10 games that I got rid of and then I got rid of again
2: Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, not that level, but like if it's, it's some people. Either way, so that's off the bat. Uh, from there, it just goes into, and I, I would say also as well. Generally, the more polite or personal, it's going to be hard for me to say no. I should say no for too many things for a variety of reasons. But if you do include something along the lines of, "Oh, I just recently watched that video with you and Vina. Like, it was so fun to watch your guys' interactions as you chose what games. To, like, like." As soon as, if you're like giving that level of personality behind the email, it is going to be harder for me to say no. It doesn't mean I won't say no. It just means that if there's that line where I'm on the fence, that might be enough to push me over. Uh, but past that, regarding the game itself, usually I just a question of am I interested or not? Uh, you know, do I already know about this game? Have I already heard about it? Is something something that's on my radar? Those are the easiest offhand. Oh, it's this game. Well, I was going to buy that anyway. Of course, I'd love to cover it. Uh, if it's something newer, if it's something different, or something that isn't on my agenda, or something that's the middle of the road, like I've heard of it. but I wasn't as sold generally there's gonna be two different lines there's gonna be a category in the middle where I, I tell the person hey I am semi-intrigued, but I'm also like not... like I, This is a game that I'd be debating whether to buy, but I wouldn't necessarily have bought it. Like I don't mind taking it on, but I don't know when the coverage will be. I don't know exactly how fast. It, it, it can go in my review pile. Some things get reviewed in two weeks. Other things do get reviewed eight months later. It does depend, especially because I'm trying to get multiple plays. And especially if it's a game that didn't work well in that first play, it might take a while before I get multiple plays in. So I never guarantee timelines unless it's a Kickstarter project. Uh, but then the last option, the very common option nowadays, is I do say no to a lot of things i say hey i really appreciate it i'd love to work with you in the future but if it doesn't appeal to me if it's not something that i would have ba- backed or bought and this is where looks matter at the end of the day like i do judge the book by its cover there are a million other factors but uh, it's the cover is a starting point if your game doesn't pull me in visually if something about it isn't in some way calling to me like i see a lot of games that do not look like games i would ever buy off a shelf and if i wouldn't buy it off a shelf i'm not putting up a whole video and spending time in it myself
1: yep Mm-hmm. it's so important so basically what you're saying is put a dragon on the cover yep. and you'll be more likely to to review well it's so it's like
0: it's just like kickstarter day you know alex the way alex you know looks at games is the same way you know kickstarter is these days you know before if you had an idea you put it up mm-hmm. and now you have to have a full full you have to have a full team you can't just do it yourself you got to have the artist you got to have you know the uh the stuff like that
2: so uh um, I, I have a full thank- video on that subject it's a full video that like i i it's talking about why I won't back a game with bad art. And it's the starting baseline is I'm not saying bad art is associated with – no, that's not true. I am saying that. I'm not saying a game can't be good <laughs> while having bad art. Some of my favorite games – Castle Burgundy, one of my favorite games of all time. The Terrifying Mars. Have you seen the art on those cards? Games can absolutely have bad art and be amazing. But the flip side is if the first and only thing I know about your game is that you failed on one of the aspects of it, maybe it's an intentional failure. Maybe that you have the time for this, but not the time for that, the budget for this. That's fine. But the only thing I know currently is that you didn't make the game look good. So you're now asking me to take a leap of faith that everything else that I can't see, you did well. Maybe you did. But why is it on me to take that leap of faith? I I only know that one area you didn't do well. And that's the only area I can see. There goes
3: my stick figure game. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a proverb that says, where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And... YouTube has a tendency to start fires and then throw a bunch of wood on those fires. And there's lots of reasons for this. One is just the way the platform is monetized. So how do you manage that where you see maybe a controversy kind of trending? When do you know when to step into that controversy or when to step out of it? And what's the sort of thinking process when it comes to creating content around controversy on YouTube particularly?
2: I love this question. I do. I really love it. It's... It's complicated, as it should be. Uh, The first baseline, before I even get into the hows, the whys, the decision points, is the fact that, yes, as a content creator, I want views and subscribers, and if you put out a controversial video, you will get more views and subscribers. You might get people who dislike it, uh, but you'll get more eyes and attention. So there's a selfish motivation to engage in controversy always. The second thing is that I don't like being controversial. I like adding to the conversation. I like, in some way, adding value and being controversial for the sake of controversial. It's yes, you get views and eyeballs and all those things, but it just feels dirty. Uh, one of the first videos I did that took off amazingly well. Uh, for a long time, it was my fastest-growing video. Like I got like 10,000 views in day one, which, and when I got it, I was at like 6,000 subscribers. It was insane. It like blew up for me. But it was it was literally called "Dead Reckoning: Why the Outrage?" question mark and I believe in titling things appropriately, and I was going into that conversation and i and i I was talking about why backers and dead reckoning a Kickstarter campaign, a game that I love by the way, I was talking about why they were so upset about a lot of different things and people there's a lot of drama in the Kickstarter comments, and there's a lot of outrage. And so my video was going into that and trying to talk about the whys, what people's expectations were, how they were set and and really just engaging in the whole conversation. And I did that video because I did think, and I still do, I think it did and does add value to the conversation. I was not even attacking AEG. I was going into the, here's where I think they set expectations maybe without realizing it, and now people are upset about those things. But it bothered me for a long time that that was my fastest growing video. Like, I don't like the fact that controversy works. It does. But I'd rather something more positive be the best video on my channel, but it it wasn't. And eventually it did get overtaken. I was very happy when it finally did but so so both things are true off the bat in terms of the liking it and not liking it disliking it but understanding the the benefit of it as far as the policy as far as how do i engage with it it's mostly that it's mostly do i think that i add Am I adding value to the conversation? Uh, it benefits me to be involved. Absolutely, it does. And I like talking about controversial subjects. My favorite things right now these days are whenever I do live streams, I love when people ask me controversial questions because I like having these conversations. I like being able to be direct and answer things, but I don't want to lean into it on my channel as the focus. So it's a, it's a balance. I like engaging, but I don't like driving it. Uh, and so right now when things pop up, I question what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And am I just trying to get views and and, and subscribers or do I think that I'm adding? Uh, recent examples that I can give of one way I did, one way I didn't is doing the Witcher Kickstarter. They had a lot of controversy around female witchers, and they pushed for and against. Historically, we haven't had them, but it's a fantasy world. What's the big deal? Inclusion. We had lots of conversations, and I I did a video taking – With most of my videos tend to take a very strong middle ground, covering why I think one side sees it this way, why I think another side sees it the other way, and trying to get to – just the common ground between them, for better and for worse. You don't, you make some friends that way, and you also make some enemies that way. Uh, another recent one that I, I I chose not to dive into because I didn't think I had value to the conversation was a uh, board game revolution. A very large Facebook group had a, a bunch of people upset with certain decisions that the moderators were taking, and there are a bunch of videos that were popping up about it, and I really questioned whether anything, whether I should do anything about it. But I didn't think that I was adding value to the conversation. I felt most people in that context already understood which side they were on. And I didn't have enough, I guess, information or perspective to be confident that the opinion I was putting out wouldn't do more harm than good. And so, yeah, controversy sells. I'll engage with it, but I'll only engage with it if I think that I am in some way adding value past value to myself.
3: Cool. That's a great way of looking at it. So currently, what's your... I suppose, most popular video at the moment, not, not in terms of the most views, but as in, like, trending and growing. You, you know, you talked about one that was controversial. Um, Has that been up. by well,
2: <laughs> Oh, that's going to be an uncomfortable answer given the conversation. Uh, the the currently most popular trending video, my my most watched video is top ten worst value board games, which is not necessarily controversial, but it is negative. That's my most popular video. So is Candyland the, in there? Candyland is not in there. It's not, it's not worst uh. board games, worst value board <laughs> games. Uh, that is my mo- my highest point video. But I don't mind that one as much because I don't mind I don't mind negative if it's not directly attacking any one thing. Controversial bothers me more. Uh, my fastest growing video currently. There's nothing that...
1: more controversial than getting a double lollipop and then getting like a the candy that sends you all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> Yeah,
2: that's a game that can go on forever. It's a problem. It's a real problem. But my most, my most, my currently most trending video that was doing very really well is about Come On. Uh, come On, which is a company I really like. I do a lot of stuff with them. I work with them. I just played Zombicide rolling Right from them. But they also had a lot of drama around the shipping prices in their last Kickstarter and Marvel Zombies. And I did a video talking about, you know, I can't remember the title of it, but it was something appropriately annoying. And it was, it it was, again, same idea. It was talking about, people upset, why they're upset, uh, covering the areas where I think Kaman could have improved the way they addressed the entire conversation, and also covering the ways where I think people are unreasonably upset and the situation right now and crowdfunding and shipping in general is crazy. Uh, but that video is is doing fairly well and trending very well on my channel.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I actually announced a $3 increase in my shipping for deliverance and, uh, you know, just to offset some of the the experiencing increases in costs and everybody everybody that responded was like, oh my goodness, only $3. Thank you so much for making it only $3. And I actually recently watched that video of yours, you know, chronicling the, you know, the controversy there. And um, it's just funny. It's like, well, you know, it's a, you're getting like 10 boxes filled with plastic and you're surprised it's $130 to ship this. Um, yeah. It's 10 packages,
2: you know. But and anyway. one, of the, one of the things I leaned into heavily, I, did this, I didn't do this in that video, I did it in a subsequent live stream because someone was bringing up Oaths One as an example. They're bringing up Oaths one, which they ran a $2 million campaign that they then proceeded to make no money on their $2 million campaign and took a loss and they decided that there's only so much of a loss they can take. And eventually they asked their backers for like $20 extra, fine. And people are like, should have come on, should have done it the way Oaths one did it. And this is I'm doing a live stream, and I I lost it. Not like screaming loser, because I don't scream. That's a I don't do that. But like I just like, like leaned in like into they it. Should
1: have purposefully been dishonest and no. then asked for more money later. Or I,
2: I, I lost it in the sense that the fact that people are holding up oath one that publicly said we made no money on the past four years of our lives. The fact that you're holding up a creator is that's the bar that we should have. That yes, we should expect board game creators and companies to make nothing. That's what we want for the growth of the space. You should make no money. So yes, Command should have done it the way oswen did. They should have made no money. You want to see how many companies we have in the board game space if that's the bar? like It's good for oswen that they do that. Good for them. I'm happy they did it for themselves. It's very nice. But like it's insulting to themselves that they didn't make money on four years of work on a $2 million campaign. It's not some small little project. And yet we hold up these martyrs who are able to do this as their side gig, as we hold them up as the bar to... To like have an industry actually function by it's 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 terrible you got mm-hmm. lucky that they that they did that you got lucky that's not the bar yeah
1: i'll say that there's a lot of altruism in the uh designers and comp you know publishers of the board game space so there's a lot of like hey let's support one another and support our local friendly game stores and encourage each other and let's be positive but the board game consumer Oftentimes, including those very same publishers, when they take off the publisher hat and they put on the "do I like this game or not" hat, it, you know, it they they are very fickle, very fickle, and oftentimes they can, you know, depending on how you as a company or really even you individually as like you know Alex Radcliffe, like your brand yourself, I think the reason that your people love you on Patreon and that you have people willing to uh, support you is because you in essence are kind of making a sacrifice of yourself for your brand by being accessible by saying this is who I am and being honest and and so on and so forth that makes people want to support you but there are so many times where companies like i mean there are so many that will release a game and say hey buy it if you want or you know we want you to buy this but you know people will look and say if i want it i will and if i think it sucks i'm going to say it and it's just a corporate machine that doesn't really have any person behind it and I don't value them and I don't want to give them any more money than I absolutely have to. And I think that in, in some ways that can be a company doing that to themselves where they keep that kind of, you know, I'll just say it in this way, a corporate veil over Mm -hmm. the company. One person who does this very, or who um, is a model of what to do would be Jamie Stegmaier, who has a fairly, sizable board game business and is also very accessible where people will be like, you know, I'm not just one of the 25,000 tapestry expansion pre-orders or the viticulture world pre-orders, but I'm, but this is Jamie Stegmar we're talking about, you know, I like supporting him and I, I find in poker, I used to be a semi-pro poker player and I would have a bankroll and all of that. People were willing to lose money to you if they liked you. So if you were a jerk and were playing really tight and be like, ah, oh, I busted you, you know, with my aces that you didn't know I had or whatever. They're, they're going to tighten up and try to do better against you. They don't want to lose any money to you. But if there's that moment of like, oh, I'm not sure what I should do. If I should call to see if he's bluffing or whatever, they are much more likely to actually call and see what you have in your hand which a really great poker player will rarely bluff. So you're going to make more money than if they didn't like you. And uh, so I don't know, I just kind of connect all those dots together. Yeah,
2: so. No, I completely agree with everything you're saying there. I mean, Marcin from Wake going could be another example of someone who's publicly available in every Facebook group for every game, commenting mm-hmm. and available. And I think they've done a fantastic job building a community. Um I do like Command, but one of the things I have given them a hard time for is the fact that they they seem to have that extra separation at times. Not all times. They're actually in, in their Kickstarter campaigns, they're very engaging, very present. They do these live streams, they're very engaging, very present. But it's almost like they it's almost like they have branches of when they're engaging and present versus when they're kind of we're corporate overlord and goodbye. And I, and I do think that has hurt their, their image, although clearly not that much because they're fairly successful, but they, yeah, I, I think in general, my opinion, Command has always been that mixed aspect of, I think there are better ways to handle it, but I think people hate them a lot more than they should.
1: Yeah. I think that this is, um, you know, as I've studied this phenomenon, it's really, to me, the personal brand, has become much more important than in years past. But we've recently seen extreme levels of effectiveness of a personal brand. And again, I'll say the same it's uh, making a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice of yourself to be more accessible to the end consumer. You have businesses of all sizes with representatives to the public that oftentimes are vast of great benefit we'll say to their organizations and two examples i mean one is elon musk dude owns a third of the the or more of the solar car market and is i don't know how he has time for twitter but he's very available on twitter to people who talk to him you know which is its own controversy but then um uh, not even getting into the fact that he's trying to buy twitter but then in addition to that you've got on kickstarter Brandon Sanderson, who traditionally is a publisher that, you know, the, the, rather he's a writer that a publisher does all that, all the work, but he has an email list of whatever, 1.5 million people. Uh, now it's more, he went to Kickstarter with this personal project and as a brand ambassador for himself and his Cosmere universe, I mean, $41 million in the bank and publishers around the world have absolutely taken note of that. I think that a board game, we'll say a personality, is going to be much more of an asset than it ever has been before, and you know, not limited to board games. So um, Alex, uh, what do you think of Deliverance, and would you put it on your channel?
2: Um, (laughs) Deliverance is interesting. Deliverance is one that I was very compelled by, but also falls into a category of dungeon crawlers that I'm always, the way I usually put it when I'm covering these campaigns is there's a certain genre where I'm like, you look like a dozen other games that I haven't played, you might be amazing, you might be not for me, ultimately it comes down to sitting down and trying it. It's a very specific genre that I just find that whenever I cover them, I'm like... If I had played this, I might be saying hey, this is the best game ever. As it stands, it looks very, very cool. Yeah. So I would say Deliverance falls into a genre that I like. There was enough hype and buzz from people whose opinions I appreciate that uh, that helps. And then also the theme has a slight drop of uniqueness to it. So my my speaking of bluntness and honestness and all that, uh, my opinion of uh, Deliverance is it actually absolutely could be the kind of game that I very much enjoy and I'd happily play it. Also, it could be a game that's fighting for shelf space with a dozen other games that are that do it better for me. Yeah, I'm
1: super curious. I can't wait. I can't wait for you to, for you to try it. Uh, I, one thing I noticed, uh, so I listened to part of a review that you did. Mm-hmm. Maybe all of it, I can't remember. It's been a long time. You were just looking at the Kickstarter and whatnot. And what I found interesting was that you called out the darkness card system and the tactical combat as kind of the, in essence, you can't win necessarily by hitting stuff harder. Um, and you called out the, the way the darkness cards come out as uh, very interesting to you. And, um, I just, I thought that was kind of cool that you were able to identify that, uh, right up front, but I can't wait to hear what you think about the campaign and the, the actual skirmish mode and all of that. I'm Um, curious. I'm curious. yeah. Yeah, me too. And you know, one, one other thing I'll mention, and I would love to have your thoughts on this is like, let's, let's just say like, you didn't like it. And you put out a video saying, I didn't like this game what does a publisher do with that? How does, you know, a small publisher, it's their first game or second game, you know, they uh, have all of the stock in it. Like what, what would you recommend? How would you recommend if somebody was on the other side? um, How would they, how would you recommend they treat reviews?
2: So it's it sucks no matter what, I guess, unless your game is awesome, then, it, then it's all good. Um, it, it's a tough situation. And one of the things I do do, which is, I guess, speaking of, you know, honest or blunt or all those things, something that I do that is absolutely unfair, but something that I do is if I'm excited about a game, I just don't care. I'll be excited about it versus when I'm not excited about a game I don't I try not to get like aggressively disappointed I try to be very flat and cold about it you know here's the things I liked here's the things I didn't like it wasn't for me but if I like it I'm like I love this this is so much fun I cannot like it's so good I had such a good time which just means I'm I'm effectively allowing myself to have a higher high than a lower low and and that's just because i feel bad for the person on the end it's bad enough that i'm gonna sit here and say by the way this game didn't do it for me but it's worse if i'm like oh my gosh these are the worst hours i spent on my life this past week like mm-hmm. i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that for for the video because i i feel bad for the creator and it's not helpful it's not necessary you can it's like, like me critical. watching interstellar yes like, exactly two and a half hours of my life back but you'll get more you'll get- You'll get more watchers.
0: You'll get more uh, subscribers. That oh, way. you absolutely <laughs> will.
2: You absolutely will. But you do so by potentially like it. It, it hurts. It hurts to mm-hmm. to to see someone trash on something you spend time and effort and energy on. Like that's. I mean, it goes back to all the things I try to do. I try to be fair. I try to be critical. I try to be blunt. But I don't. I don't love being negative. I should feel bad when someone's hurt by something I said, and it's it's, it's important. And so, as far as what you take out of it, so that's my first. The first thing is I try to be clinical about it. I try to be here are the things I do not like, and it's a good game didn't do it enough for me other games you know stand out a lot more and had a lot more going for them uh, as far as what to take out from it it's really just the first the first baseline i have the very first one is ignore single opinions every single time ignore single opinions if you gave the review to 10 people and seven of them like it and three don't you're doing fine your game is fine don't focus on the negative ones that heavily now if there's specific aspects if there's commonalities if the three people didn't like that one thing if all three people thought the game ran too long for the length. Take that into account because that's a common opinion to walk away from. It's no different than myself and and the fact that I have a comment section. And comments are generally nice, but not everyone's nice on the internet. And I don't care what someone says unless it's something that I see repeated multiple times. If it's something that's repeated on a regular basis, then I'm like, oh, I should adjust or modulate or in some way take that feedback into account. On the other hand, if it's just somebody else, who cares what some, I mean, like you have no clues typing. It could be some 12-year-old kid on the internet or whatever. You, no, you don't want to read into it too much. And so it, it very heavily, ignore single opinions and focus on the general opinions and feedback you're getting. And then just try to be factual about it. You're going to obviously be more attached to your game than other people. And your game may or may not be right for others. And it may or may not take the wind out of you. It might, you might, might forget just wind. It could be emotional. It could be financial. You could be sitting on a warehouse of, of, of you know, ten thousand copies of a game you were really hoping would sell. When the r- reviews came in, and now seven reviews came in, and they're all fairly negative, and you just took a huge financial loss. It, I, I don't have an easy answer there. It is what it is. It's you, your, your goal. Your goal is to do as well as you can in the thing that you're love doing and trying to whatever. But the audience's goal or the reviewer's goal is to guide people towards what is the right fit for them. So if you can take something positive out of the negative, great. If you can't, whether financially or emotionally, then it might not be a space that you should be in.
1: To bring up Jamie Stegmaier again, he says he does not watch reviews. I yep. think that that is to you know, incentivize people giving their honest opinion and not you know, an inflated opinion because they want to appease him or on the opposite end of the coin to fear that he won't send them another game because they gave it a negative review. Uh, do you think that's the right approach for a small creator to take?
2: I think it's a good concept, but I don't think it works functionally unless you have a department that could watch the reviews. I think reviews are important. Why wouldn't you want the reviews of the game from people? So if you can separate it, if you can say the people handling who gets the review copies is different than the people handling how we make sure these problems don't happen again, then sure, that works. But to to turn down, if you you put out a game and you just don't in any way want to get feedback on the game from people who weren't part of your selected crew, I mean, I I think that's going to hurt you. So if you can, I I don't even know Jamie's approach. I don't know if he has a separate department managing it or not, but someone I hope is watching the reviews because I think that's an important part.
0: It reminds me of those uh, questionnaires. I used to work at target. We still always have those on the bottom of the receipt. Tell us how you did. And it sort of reminds me of that where like, yeah, I I think if you feel like you're going to be too emotionally attached, maybe you should have someone else just go through them all and like, you know, like, This percentage or this many, you know, percentage of people said the game's too long. This percentage said that, you know, that this mechanic was great. That way it's more of a, I think a black and white, you know, thing where it's, you can actually see like more of the overall picture as opposed to individuals. I think that would be like the best. Maybe uh, we can do another crowdfunding nerds uh, product. (laughs) Reviews of
3: reviews. (laughs) (laughs) So Alex, we're going to wrap up soon, but I have one final question. How many times on average would you say you play a game before you give your thoughts on the game oh, itself?
2: That's going to be a very different answer depending on a number of different things. I, would, if you, Well, that's not true because you asked on average. On average, probably three to four, I would say, uh, but it depends on a lot of other factors that affect that number. If it's a campaign game, uh, often a lot more. Usually campaign games I play until I feel that I'm not seeing something new. Uh, if it's a game that I did not enjoy, I usually play it less. I aim for a minute in general, my rule of thumb is if I played a game once, I will call it a first impressions and tell you I played it once. Anything more than once, I'm willing to, but I try to get more than that. Two is like just feels like not enough often. I think three is usually where I start to feel really comfortable with a game. But if I don't like a game, it's hard enough to give it a second play, let alone a third. So generally, the more negative my opinion is, the more likely it saw two plays, or even or possibly three, but usually I'd say more likely two. Um, again, unless I tell you one. If I tell you one, then it, then, then it is what I told you. As far as games that are more middle to positive... That's where you start getting in the three to five category on a more general basis. If it's a shorter game, there are games I've played 17 times before reviewing it. If it's a shorter, fast game, uh, you know, even like five times, six times, like Mythic Mischief was a game I played like eight or nine times because it played quickly enough and it's easy to table. A long, heavy Euro that takes three and a half hours and four people, even if I love it, it might be hard to justify waiting for that fourth play. So I would say three to four is probably the general range with some getting two, very infrequently getting one. And then some definitely hitting the you know five plus camp.
1: So uh, now I guess I have a last question as well related to what you said about um, the Kickstarter. Uh, you know, games where an upcoming Kickstarter is coming that have a you know a time limit where you really have to review before the Kickstarter goes live or while it's live, the video has to be published, or it's not worth it at all. Um, are you conscious about? How many of those you take on because they they have to go to the front of the queue or what?
2: what short answer. Short answer is yes. Uh, I'm conscious of how many I have to take on, uh, but I also take on less and less. As much as possible. Uh, just I, Again, I try to be more and more critical as time goes on of what I'm willing to take on because I, I guess i would, the way I'd put it is around three months ago, for the first time I missed a deadline. For the first and only time I actually missed a deadline, I just could not play the game in time. And I felt terrible about that. And that was because I said yes to something I shouldn't have said yes to. I said it, it, lo- it, looked, it looked appealing. It's not a bad game. It's just I wasn't completely sold and it did look semi appealing. And I said yes and then it just didn't get prioritized. And that made me be a lot more careful what I take on. Uh, past that, as far as the general mindfulness, it's the thing that I've get, I, I'm have i mindful of how many prototype things I have in queue at any time. The thing I'm less mindful of, which hurt me one time, although I still managed to get everything done, it's just a very tough few weeks, was when I had taken on a bunch of projects across a range of time, but the dates all happened in the same like two weeks. So I had taken on like, I don't know, like 15, 20 games across a four month period. Then all those 15, 20 games landed in the same week and a half. And I was like, this is going to be very, very problematic because I wasn't clearing them out as fast as they came in. I was like, oh, the Kickstarter is not till later. And that's another thing I've done recently as well. Uh, Now I, I used to wait be more, being more mindful of the Kickstarter date. And nowadays I try to clear them as soon as they come in, even if the Kickstarter is not for three months, because it means I don't run into that situation where I'm desperately trying to compromise. And there is compromise. Sometimes I've said, Hey, this is our first impressions because I just didn't get it played enough. And it is what it is. And I have to, because sometimes I can play it more, but this is a Kickstarter. I need to get the video up. And so that's, that kind of thing happens. And I try to minimize it as much as possible by, by being mindful, by getting it earlier and and that kind of thing.
0: And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds. A big shout out to Alex Radcliffe of board game co. You can visit him on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash board game co. And is there anywhere else you'd like us to visit to check you out online, Alex?
2: Absolutely. I recently started doing content over on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash camp underscore co-op camp co-op, like camp cooperative uh, past that. I still do stuff on Instagram and, uh, that's those, those sound like good enough places. There you have it from the man himself. And of
0: course, if you like this episode and would like to listen to more, visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you're interested in getting some pre-marketing done for your crowdfunding campaign, click on the hire us link on that website as well. And until then, we will see you next week. Stay nerdy.